Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VBCOA podcast, a Building Code Geeks podcast. I am your host, the VBCOA Education Chair, Ms. Christina Jackson, and with me today I have Mr. Robbie Dawson. Hi, Mr. Dawson. How are you doing? Hey, good, Christina. How are you? I'm good. So, as always, I would like you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, actually, if I'll start with the end and work my way backwards. Uh, right now, I'm the Southeastern Regional Director for the National Fire Protection Association. Uh, but uh, my time in Virginia goes way back. I was a um, uh, fire marshal in Chesterfield, Virginia for a number of years and worked in a fire service in Chesterfield and started as a volunteer EMS pr- provider in Henrico County for a number of years. So uh, uh, it's during my time in the fire marshal's office in Chesterfield's where I got kind of the bitten by the code geek bug and uh, stumbled into, fell into, or was dragged into the code development process, depending on what day of the week it was. I think. <laughs> and, uh, currently, I work for, like I said, the NFPA, representing the association across the southeast, uh, talking about the solutions that, and the standards that NFPA brings to the table for use by fire and building code officials, as well as fire service organizations around the world. That is great. So how did you get into the fire code world if if we could call it that how, how did how yeah, did your career start well the the fire service career started like i said i was a volunteer when i was in high school with uh, an ems agency the lakeside volunteer rescue squad in henrico uh, and while i was there a lot of uh, a lot of the members there were firefighters both in henrico and in chesterfield and uh, right out of high school as soon as i got i got that bug i knew what i wanted to do mm-hmm. I uh, got hired by Chesterfield not too long after I got out of high school and uh, went to be a paramedic, got, went to paramedic school, got my paramedic certifications, uh, flew on the med flight program for a number of years as a flight paramedic, um, wound up going back to the fire station uh, and ultimately getting promoted to lieutenant in, in an engine company. Uh, and how I wound up in the fire marshal's office was uh, when I was a lieutenant, my battalion chief at the time, he got transferred to the fire marshal's office as the fire marshal had absolutely no prevention, no, no code experience in his career at all mm. and got thrown into that world. And, um, I don't know, a year or so later I stopped by admin and he was in there and I just stopped chat, stopped to chat with him for a few minutes. Cause there was a inspector investigator opening in the office. Mm-hmm. And I just said, Hey, you know what, uh, tell me about this job. I'm just kind of curious. What's uh, what's the deal. And we talked for maybe half hour, 45 minutes about what it was, what it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the role of, uh, at the time, our Fire and Life Safety Division was a part of and doing in the department at the time. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I said, well, how many people have put in for it? How many how many people have applied to do it? And he said, none. <laughs> and, and I saw the handwriting on a wall at, like that. It was. Uh, I said, okay, well, what are you going to do if nobody puts in? He said, no, we'll reach out and grab somebody. I went, okay. Who? What would make you decide to reach out and grab somebody? And I, he goes, well, we'll probably get somebody who's expressed even a minor interest in the position. I went, oh. How many people have done that? And he went, one. And looked right at me and kind of grinned. And I went, okay, I got it. So, so the right I saw the handwriting on the wall. On the wall and, yeah. And I uh, went ahead and put my letter in and, and got transferred to the office. And that was in uh, well, that, 2001. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I wound up getting promoted a couple of times staying in that office, which uh, for me, it was a huge, huge advantage because I, I kind of saw – uh, the learning curve that Mike, my, my predecessor, had to go through coming into that office as the fire marshal, the code official with no code experience. And I got to come in as an inspector investigator 
uh, moved up to deputy fire marshal overseeing the inspections, investigations, and pub ed programs, and then got promoted to fire marshal. So I, 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 I feel like I had it. You know, he was a great supervisor. He was a tremendous leader. Uh, but I had a little bit more of an advantage when I took that role because I was I had been in the position as an inspector investigator and learned that piece of the puzzle for many years before I became a code official. So uh, to to me, I think that was a huge asset uh, going forward. So so would you say that's part of the path of a fire fire marshal or a successful fire marshal? Um, successful or, or not, I think it really depends on the individual and what they bring to the table. Uh, I, I, I know of some <clears throat> fire marshals who came in from without code experience and came into the fire marshal's office. And it, they, like I said, the learning curve is pretty steep and it's a, it truly is a different mindset from the field of emergency operations. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to always tell people who came in <clears throat> new to the office, um, you're used to going, seeing a problem, solving a problem, and go to the next problem. And with very little research or, or thought, it was very much a, see problem A, I have a solution to problem A, fix it, and move on to the next one. Right. In the code world, it's very different. And a lot of times, you you have the ability or the time to slowly analyze what you're looking at, mm-hmm. do some research, do some reading, look at history, look at the code book a little bit deeper in order to make a more informed decision, whether it's you know your first decision you come into the office or the last one I made when I left, um, I, I always looked at the first question as how quickly do I have to make this decision, and if and if I had any time at all to to look at it, I would do a lot more uh, reading on the code, looking at the history, looking at the history of buildings or the the what the fire protection systems did or what the code said around that building or that occupancy mm-hmm. before I made that decision. And well, that's, I think that's the biggest change or challenge that new fire marshals have. They've got that problem, fix, move on quickly mentality of dealing with emergencies. And now you're not truly dealing with emergencies all the time. You're dealing with an issue that you can take a little bit more time on, study, analyze, ask questions, ask your peers, uh, ask other organizations to get more more information to make them a more informed decision going forward. I think that's the biggest that was the biggest challenge I saw at least in some folks. That's a great way of putting it. You have to be methodical in trying to solve uh, the issue as far as when it comes to fire fire code and enforcing the statewide uniform. Uh, fire code for Virginia. So that ties into a good question on how does the fire marshal's office work to tie into building work or code enforcement? Yeah, I, I think they, 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 it's code enforcement is the big umbrella. When you're talking about building code, fire code, property maintenance code, zoning and, and planning codes, all of those uh, f- fit hand in glove. And I think one of the biggest things um, our county did uh, while I was the fire marshal, is we the the community development division, which was under under a different county organizational structure than the fire department was, was responsible for zoning and planning, as as well as the building code office. Uh, and um, uh, Bill Dupler and Rick Whit were the two building officials I got to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, we we all moved into the same building. The fire marshal's office moved into the second floor of the community development building. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the building code official, building official's office was downstairs from us, and some of the planning and zoning folks were on the floor above. So we were pretty much co-located together, and I think that did a lot to improve communications because before that, we were in two different buildings across the, the county complex, and uh, what I saw happening was our plans reviewer, we, we did the plans review for fire protection systems 
in our office, even though it was the authority for enforcing that code as the building was being built was the building officials. Um, I, it was it was done long before I got there, but it got the fire marshal's office and the fire service engaged with that uh, built environment a lot sooner. We as a fire department were more aware of the built-in fire protection. We had a better awareness of what the risks and hazards were in our community. So all of that kind of fit together. And I saw a lot of our uh, fire plans reviewers and our fire inspectors just stopping into the first floor to talk to the commercial plans reviewer mm-hmm. or, or the commercial uh, inspection supervisor to say, hey, I've got this problem in this building that's been built you know, 15 years ago. Can we go back and look at some of the history and, and how we got here? Mm-hmm. So. So I think that team, that bigger teamwork, the better communications, the the better understanding of them understanding what our job was and us understanding what their job was, right. went a long way to, to helping us be more effective at, at code enforcement on a bigger scale, whether it's zoning, planning, building maintenance, and fire code as well. And then also, too, that's the key in making sure that um, the citizens and the community that you serve at large doesn't feel as if you're uh, picking on them, so to speak. There are a lot of times we get accused of that being, you know, pick, uh, picking on certain businesses or locations. But if we do that uh, teamwork of code enforcement where, you know, we all go out there together, we, you know, you address what you can on the fire marshal's end and we address what we can address on the building code or property maintenance code. Um, it just all tends to seem like we're working as a cohesive unit versus in our own separate little bubbles. And, you know, but we're all trying to get the same result, which is compliance, you know, compliance on the fire code and compliance on the building code. Yeah, and, and um, you bring up an interesting point there, compliance uh, versus code enforcement. Um, you know, in, in, when I came to NFPA, uh, they came up with this this uh, this kind of nomenclature of the fire and life safety ecosystem, and it's six different components that uh, include, you know, an educated workforce and the government's responsible and a lot of other things. But one of the cogs in that system is code compliance Mm -hmm. and we had a long debate when i first got there it was just getting ready to roll out and it used to be called code enforcement Mm -hmm. and uh one of the one of the comments i made and i don't know if it had any sway over how it came out was my mindset was i I would always rather have our inspectors get code compliance rather than enforce the code and it's it's a it's a nuanced term Mm -hmm. but if i go out and enforce the code upon you as a business owner or a building manager that's different than me explaining to you why it's important that this fire protection system be inspected and tested and maintained over time, why it's important that the storage of combustibles is within the code and why it's important that means of egress are open and accessible to the public. Right. And let, let that building owner understand the why this is important, get them to be educated on that, have that educated workforce. Mm-hmm. And then the, the compliance is then their idea, so they understand the reasons why, rather than um, you know coming in as an inspector and go, okay, uh, here's your summons for this fire code violation. Right. Press hard. You're making four copies. I'll see you in court. Uh, and I always, I always try to, t- to talk to the folks in the offices. If you have to get to the point where you issue a summons, uh, you've kind of failed at that first part of trying to educate the public to why this code compliance is a good idea right. and why they should do it. You know, we had to do that occasionally. Sometimes we had to, we had to get to that, the hammer to hammer the nail home with the, with the true summons. But, uh, if anytime we can get compliance, that's what we're after. We, you know, going to court is a pain. You yes. have to deal with lawyers. You have to deal with <laughs> the judges, not that they're bad people, right. but it just simply takes away from the time to do the job, which is 
do the inspection, get compliance voluntarily from the building owner, and move on to the next one. So, well, and you just lead into what my model is as well is when you're um, trying to get compliance from an owner, you're just trying to get them to change bad behaviors. It's it, you know a lot of times it's um, a learned thing, you know, just leaving your trash out or having a block in the egress, and you know if you don't try to get them to comply with it now, they're just going to move to the next spot and run into the same situation again. And so we're just trying to, you know, educate, like you said, educate the public so that we can have um, properties and buildings that are being used that are in safe, safe to the public and doesn't, you know, put anybody at verse risk of being injured or hurt, you know, in the event of an emergency. So I totally agree with you, Robbie, on that sentiment. We got to yeah. educate the public, and that's part of what this podcast is doing. Exactly. So I appreciate you. So a question, do you like your job? Yeah, I, lo- I love my job. And, you know, the, you know, everybody's asked me, well, do you miss the fire service? Um, and absolutely, I miss a lot of the people, uh, almost everybody I worked with. And I'm still very closely connected to them, uh, either, you know, past retirees, people who are still there. Um, and I, and I love the work we did both when I was in operations. I mean, that was very rewarding work. It was challenging work. It was a great teamwork environment. I really enjoyed getting into the codes, which is another story of how I wound up getting into the code development process. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and even in my job today, I still get to do some of that, uh, put on it with a bigger footprint. And, you know, I, I miss a lot of the details. I, I'm not the one actually doing the code change proposals or doing a lot of the argument or debate uh-huh. on code change pro- proposals, but I'm able to help those uh, proponents and even opponents of some code changes and code adoption processes walk, help walk them through the process. I, I'm dealing with um, the Florida fire prevention codes being developed right now. They've got about another eight months in their process. And there's somebody who's trying to get a change to the fire prevention code in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and officially, I don't have a position on it. It's not a bad change by any stretch. Is it a good change? Maybe so. Uh, but I'm kind of walking this person through you know, how that process works, how you amend an NFPA code in the, in the incorporation by reference process locally or at the state level. To, to help that person through that process. And that, that's kind of my, you know, the, what I get a lot of fulfillment from now is trying to educate those folks and how this process works, particularly somebody who's never been involved in it before because you know, um, somebody who's who all of a sudden says, oh, I want to change this code or standard and then looks at the process and goes, holy cow, I don't want to get in the middle of this because right. it's, it's just this this massive <laughs> elephant that you're trying to eat. And I say, hey, just, just eat the elephant one bite at a time. And here's the... Here's the step-by-step process, and it's not as—it's long, it's complicated, it's complex. But when you when you when you're familiar with it, it's pretty simple at its at its core. Uh, but you just got to follow the process and work through it for sure. I totally I totally agree with you on that, Robbie. It's a a, a matter of if you propose a code change, you do realize you have to convince hundreds maybe even thousands of people to be like oh that's a great code change and or something like that or you know some people get discouraged when people don't think that it's as as good as a code change as you you've convinced in your mind or or seen the the data to say oh this would be a great code change um so i agree with you on that and i i commend you on your efforts and and you know encouraging people to not give up if they you know, if they're passionate about the code change, you know, put it forth. You know, all they can do is say no. 
Yeah. And, and the biggest piece of that I, I think is, 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 you know, whether it's an NFPA standard or code you're changing or, or we're working towards something in the ICC, the first time that, other people see that change should not be at the code change hearing or the technical committee meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always tell people, Hey, the more, more eyes you get on this language and the idea and understanding the concept, the better, the better you can um, argue the opponents of it mm-hmm. and the better your code change is going to be. Cause a lot of times, you know, you know, you know, as well as I do, is it at the, at the hearings and at the technical committee meetings, m- more code gets finally written in the back of the room with three or four people standing around editing and, and dra- redrafting to get the language better um, beforehand. And I've always encouraged people to go through that process long before that, you know, gets into the place and talk to other stakeholders, talk to the, who you think might be opposed to it and try to try to win them to your side first. So it is a process. It's, it's a little bit like a political process. You know, you're trying to win sponsors and supporters for your bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to speak, but it, it is a, it, it, it's not a stand up in the room and this is, this is my great idea. You, you guys should vote for it. Right. Uh, and then somebody does it and you're like, wait a minute, why, why this is a great idea. Right. <laughs> and you never, you know, you're shocked that you know, I'm shocked and appalled. Somebody is actually opposed to my great idea. Right. But, uh, finding out about it before it gets to that stage is certainly an advantage. So in the code development process, you bring up an interesting point about the code development process. Um, and NFPA, is it more of um, a code change is needed because technology has advanced or there's been a event that has caused some kind of um, conflict in the code and trying to enforce it? Uh, what would you say has been your experience with the code development process? <clears throat> I think you hit it on the head that one of two things is well, one two of the major things that cause codes to be changed or developed or evolve over time is one is that emerging technologies, uh, and one and the one we're dealing with now is electric vehicles and energy storage systems, uh, the use of, and the prevalence and the expansion of uh, lithium ion batteries and energy storage cells, both in the business and the residential space, uh, are, are creating. Uh, concern, let's say, and it, I think some of the concern is based off of a lack of knowledge and lack of awareness. Some of it's based on the, the newness of the technology, and uh, NFPA addressed that through NFPA 855 a couple of years ago and came up with that standard that addresses the installation, maintenance, and even decommissioning of energy storage systems, um, and we've learned a lot uh, about those types of technologies and and. The, the some of the language of 855 has made its way into uh, the I codes, both the IFC and the IBC. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a little bit longer term because uh, the last code cycle for the ICC, the 855 document wasn't quite finished yet. But I think as we move forward uh, in the ICC development process, you'll see NFPA 855 being a referenced document within that code, uh, and you'll see that piece being used a lot more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side of the coin is something bad happens. Um, one of the, there was a fire chief in one of the code committee, uh, work groups in Virginia that kind of stood up and said, uh, you know, these codes are built upon the bodies and blood of our fellow man. And, and some of that's true. I mean, if you go back and look at, uh, things like the station nightclub fire, mm-hmm. uh, that, that got the codes changed to require sprinklers and a use groups of more than a hundred people uh, occupancy. You look at the Sofa Superstore fire in Charleston, South Carolina that killed nine firefighters. 
and you see the changes that came out of that in, in occupancies that have uh, retail sale of upholstered furniture because the fire environment in those situations has changed so much with the, with the prevalence of synthetics and more plastics and the heat release rates and the fire behavior that happens in those types of occupancies has changed. So uh, either technology's changed or, or something untoward has happened. We've, we've hurt or killed somebody that's really driven a lot of the code changes we see. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think between the two, hopefully we see more code changes as a result of new technologies and new building materials and new building techniques uh, than we see, uh, you know, death and injuries being the impetus for these code changes. Mm, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that information. And uh, our listeners can really uh, see how they, they can be a part of the changes that they may want to see, you know, in regards to uh, NFPA and safety standards and regulations for fire and, and building a new construction. Um, so what is the future of code enforcement as far as the fire marshal's role or in the fire industry or NFPA's role in code enforcement? Um, I think probably the, 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 the latest wave of from the code enforcement perspective is the concept and and covid kind of drove us this in this direction a little sooner i think than the than the standards allowed is this, this idea of doing remote inspections mm-hmm. uh nfpa 915 is a new standard that's coming out it should be out this year mm-hmm. uh, that outlines you know the how to do a remote inspection and um there's a lot of good information in there but there's nothing in it that says you have to use this technology or you have to use um, this type of web access or these types of cameras or this type of software platform. Can I ask a supplemental but, question before sure. you go on? Have you gotten sure. any pushback on that? Have you gotten any uh, concerns from constituents and just people in the industry um, with with the remote inspections about maybe something might get missed or well not not really mm-hmm. um there talk about it you know pushback i wouldn't call it that but kind of vocal vo- voiced concerns mm-hmm. have been that kind of thing is okay you know you, you know as well as i do and any inspector who's been in the field you see things better if you're there in person than if somebody's on an iPhone or a, an Android kind of giving you the picture. Right, if I, or a drone. If I'm a little bit nefarious and I'm the business owner, I'm going to show you everything but what I don't want to show you. Um, <laughs> not, not saying that that could ever happen, but just, that, that is a concern. <clears throat> so I, I think for remote inspections, there is certainly a, a place – and time for it. I, I think my old my old jurisdiction. I think when when COVID happened, they went to doing remote inspections, but it was pretty narrowly focused. If I remember right, it was the inspector would go out to do the uh, the inspection in person at first, look at everything around the the building and the environment, and then maybe there's three or four violations or deficiencies that needed to be addressed, and then you know a week later, 10 days later, whatever it comes down to that, that, that contractor, that building owner says, okay, we got it fixed. Come back. And he goes, Hey, well, let's do this remotely. Just show me those three or four things. I can check them off my list and say they're good to go. So it's kind of that scope of the inspection. I certainly wouldn't want to do, uh, use a hospital as an example. I certainly wouldn't want to do a full blown hospital inspection uh, from scratch virtually. That would, that would, I think be a nightmare and you would, you probably miss something, but if you go to that hospital and there's two or three violations, why not allow that building owner to give you a virtual walkthrough to show you those two or three things? Mm-hmm. 
it saves time. It becomes more efficient. Uh, it's probably more effective. It's more efficient on the business owner's end. Uh, and I think what 915 really talks about is is not necessarily the process you as an as an AHJ have to use. It says you as the AHJ have to have a policy and a procedure that says when, where, and how mm-hmm. you will allow virtual inspections. That's great. Uh, every, everything from you know w- these are the types of inspections we do virtually. These are the types of inspections we will not do virtually. And maybe there's some in the middle that becomes kind of that inspector discretion. Yeah, I haven't been to this building yet at all, so I'm going to go in person. Or I've been there three or four times and I've got a good picture. I'm going to do it virtually. So so 915 really talks about that from the standpoint of having that policy or procedure established. And I think that goes a long way to establishing expectations on the, the business owner's end as well. They know what they can do. They know what they aren't able to do mm-hmm. uh, and kind of establishes the ground rules of that environment right off the bat. And that's a big piece of what 915 does. They talk about a lot of uh, there's some other stuff around the ownership of photographs and videos and um, things like that. So it's a little bit more complex than that, but at its, at its root that that's the bulk of what NFPA 915 talks about is how and when and where you do these inspections and documenting that process so everybody knows what game what sheet of music they're singing from and so that leads us to our one of our final questions uh mr dawson is how would you encourage young people to get into the profession well from uh from a fire perspective uh, you know i i've encouraged a few people to go out and find these explorer programs Mm -hmm. Uh, become a volunteer at the local fire department. I, I, there's you know, almost everybody I worked with from, say, my generation that that are at or near their um, retirement point right mm-hmm. there from the fire service. They got their start. Most of them in the volunteer organizations. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, I think that you you can do that. You can tow your put your toe in the water. You can learn from some very uh, experienced folks in those organizations and kind of get into it either as a volunteer or some people have some jurisdictions have explorer programs where they're a lot more structured. I, I know um, Hanover County's got a, a program, or they at least they used to, uh, as part of their technical program, where you could go go to fire school and come out of it as a, as at least I think a certified level one firefighter. So you so you learn what being a firefighter is um, early, mm-hmm. um, and you you go into it into the career with your eyes open because I, I know some people have have uh, looked on websites, oh, this fire department job is open. I think I'll, I think I'll sign up. And then they get to the first couple of days of recruit school and go, wait a minute, this, this air pack is heavy. And boy, this, <laughs> this face piece is very confining. I don't like this very much. And then they, they walk away from it, right. unfortunately. So I think the more, ex- more exposure you can get to that environment, the better. Uh, from a code enforcement standpoint, probably the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, um, I'll mention a, a name, Kenny Payne, who was an architect who was probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met talking about the existing building code. Right. Kenny was great. Even as an architect, he, he knew how, how the code worked um, and was instrumental in, in developing some of that code going forward. So uh, any of these professions, whether it's in the construction industry and in the construction trades, I know on this podcast, you've had a lot of folks on who started out in the construction industry and kind of transitioned into inspections and code enforcement and i think that 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 gives them a little bit more insight as well so i think the for for new folks who want to get into into this world uh the 
best experience you've got in the other side of the coin, you know, in the construction trade, in the firefighting trade, before you become a fire inspector, um, the better you're going to be. I don't, I don't think that's by any stretch should be a prerequisite or a requirement, but, uh, it, it is a good experience level and, and kind of some history to understand the work you're doing and how it impacts uh, the built environment and the fire environment long-term. That is, that is great advice. Well, Mr. Dawson, I really appreciate all the appreciate all this wealth of information that you've given us on today during the podcast. I've learned some things. I, I'm going to take away some things, maybe uh, modify my motto <laughs> to coincide with what you've been telling everyone um, in the fire industry. If anyone has any questions or wants to reach out to you outside of this podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, please do then, you know, as, as being the Southeastern regional uh director for NFPA. I'm kind of the, people ask me what my job is and it's a little bit of everything. And I think the kind of the best uh, descriptive term is that I'm as a, I'm a customer service representative from the association to the end user, whether it's building owners, you know, inspectors, uh, contractors and whatnot. So please reach out with questions. Um, the best source of our information from NFPA broadly is NFPA.org. Uh, and, and just one comment that we, we've, um, We've recently started or been involved with a project with the electric vehicle industry mm-hmm. and and offer up a number of online courses on electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people sometimes say that NFPA stands for no free publications available. <laughs> uh, but uh, in this case, that, that program, those electric vehicle training programs are on the website for free because of a grant program we worked with. So... If you go to nfpa.org backslash EV for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. there's a ton of stuff on there, both for the fire service, for building officials, for planners and developers, for tow truck operators, and, and to outline some of the risks and challenges and the codes associated with electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge uh, resource. It's free. All you have to do is go to that website and you can see the training that's out there. If anybody wants to get in touch with me personally, uh, my email is pretty easy to remember. It's r. Dawson, R-D-A-W-S-O-N, at NFPA.org. Uh, shoot me an email. Uh, if you got questions or need any more information or need some resources from NFPA, I'd be sure to be glad to help. Thank you, Mr. Dawson. This has been a VBCOA podcast, a Building Code Geeks podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Christina Jackson, the VBCOA Education Chair. We'll see you next time on the next podcast.